Well, happy new year and welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast where we believe that no one drifts into excellence. My name is Steve Shear and I'm your host of the Impact of Leadership podcast. Uh, I do my best to bring on talented, focused, exciting people um, for all of our benefit. I'm just going to shoot straight right here. This was a really selfish <laughs> uh, guest. I wanted to talk to Liz Wiseman and I I just, I loved having her on. I, uh, her books are fantastic. She is the author of Multipliers, which is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to have her on is not just because of her book Multipliers, but really to focus on a, a different book that I also really, really liked, which is called Impact Players. And so that's going to be the focus of part one and part two of uh, the next of the interview with her. So we broke it up into two parts um, because it was a long one. She gave me so much time and I was very, very grateful for that. Uh, met Liz Wiseman at a, uh, an event that was local to us in Southeast Wisconsin. And um, you never know how life's going life's gonna to go. My buddy recommended her book, Multipliers, to me in a coffee shop. Fast forward months later, I got to interview her. It's just crazy. So uh, without further ado, this is part one of my conversation with Liz Wiseman, author of many books, but we're focusing on the book Impact Players. Before we get into the book, and I'll mention the title and stuff in a minute, um, what do people incorrectly assume about you? Uh, So for example, people read your books, they hear you speak. I'm assuming they're kind of like me, sometimes they feel like they they know you because of your writing style, the way that you connect with the audience. Um, again, at least I did and I do. But what is it that you'd help us better understand about you that people incorrectly assume about you as a person? Well, I'll tell you what someone told me once is someone I had worked with, had been working with him for a couple months and he just popped off. He's like, Liz, you are not as advertised. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, no, you're not at all like what you seem. And I'm like, wow, like what is the gap there? And he goes, no, when I first met you, you seemed so like easygoing and casual and nice and friendly and like just it's the easygoing, like as if you didn't have a care in the world. And he goes, but that's not you at all. Like you are intense. You are like you're up for a fight, you're willing to work. You're like like you grind. I think he thought I was easygoing, and I don't think I am. In fact, that reminds that makes me think. You know, Steve, your question. I'm putting two and two together. Once I described myself as easygoing to my mother-in-law during a family dinner, like we were saying something. I'm like, oh, that's because I'm just like you know my sister-in-law. I said we're both so easygoing, and she spit out her food laughing at this. And <laughs> she's like. Pfft. She's like, Liz, you are not easygoing. I'm like, really? I see myself that way. She's like, no, you're intense. So I guess I'm not easygoing. There's a place for that. And I want to say, too, that uh, this is this is apropos of nothing other than I spit takes. So when uh, I have a personal goal of at least 10 spit takes, so like if I say something unexpected or funny, that someone spits out their food or their, or their drink because I think it's so funny when that takes place. So I'm imagining dinner table, but it's not even that you're being funny. It's that they're correcting you on the type of person you are. And it's uh, my I, mother-in-law who's not the kind. Right. She's very serious. And so she was not the kind to like do a spit take. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, this is good. This is good warm up. So uh, I, I want to jump into, <clears throat> excuse me, the book, uh, Impact Players, How to Take Lead, Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. So uh, with that kind of transition there, what, or excuse me, who did you have in mind when you wrote it? When you wrote Impact Players, who were you writing that for? I think I wrote impact players for two types of people. I think I wrote it for people who want to be like super contributors, like people who don't just want a job. They don't want just a position in an organization. They really want to be difference makers. They want to do work that's valuable and valued, and they want to feel like they're making a difference, not just turning a crank. So I think... That was the first audience I had in mind because that's who we studied. We were trying to decode who are the people who are the impact players on teams and what makes them different and how do they think differently and what do they do differently and and how do some of those small differences end up creating extraordinary differences in the impact they have. So that was the first. And I think the second was for managers. And, you know, I... I stumbled into this research, as I have with all my research and books, I kind of stumble into what I think is a a conundrum, like, hmm, I see this happen a lot, but no one seems to understand why that's happening and what's going on here. So I dig in. But what I was um, dealing with is what I called, I, I called them Steve warranty calls. And what that was, was, you know, I had written this book, Multipliers, and a lot of people had read it. And there's a lot of people who had come to the conclusion, gee, I don't want to be a diminisher. I want to be a multiplier of talent and you know intelligence and capability. And so they would go out and do the things that they had heard about or read about. And then they would come back to me in some way and say, yeah, I tried all that and it didn't work. And I'm like, what do you mean it didn't work? Like, talk to me about that. And so they'd be like, well, you told me I should ask questions and let other people find answers. And, you know, I'm doing that like I'm asking questions, but I get crickets and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, like what's going on there and creating an organization where people can show up and play big and do big thinking and do their best work. Like that's a function of leadership for sure. But leadership isn't the only variable in that equation. You know, there's also the way that the contributor shows up and kind of put a little bit more crassly. It was when um, I was teaching a, a, a workshop on multipliers and one of the attendees just kind of popped up his hand. I could tell he had something urgent to say. He's like, hey, I want to be a multiplier, but you can't multiply zero. And at first, Steve, I'm shocked because I'm thinking, is he telling me and everyone here in this room that he thinks the people who work for him are zeros? Like dummies, dinglings? Like, and, and so I'm like, queued up, ready to give this little speech about, hey. Ready to fight. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you got smart people on your team. And, Mm -hmm. but then I realized he was talking about something entirely different. Um, He was, he was saying, like, I have to show up kind of with my game on as a leader with the right mindsets, the right practices, be curious, ask good questions, great space for others. But I also expect other people to step into that space. And, and so that got me really looking at, hmm, why why are some people so much easier to lead than others? Like, why does an ounce of good leadership go 
a long way. And so the book is written for people who want to show up that way at work or who are scratching their head wondering like, why am I on the sidelines? Like, why isn't anyone giving me the ball? Like, how come no one hands me the ball in the big moments? But I'm also writing it for managers who are trying to figure out the other part of the equation. Like, they're doing their piece as best as they can, but they need to help other people do their piece. That is the thing that dawned on me um, when I was, I don't know which time through the book, but it hit me. This is helping articulate the thing that I can't answer about great employees or when someone that I've reported to has complimented me and I'm like, I don't really know that I'm doing anything special here. <laughs> Why, you know, it, probably or, were. It, to, to the to the employer, yeah, and and to to me, it was like, well, why wouldn't I just step into that? Or same same sort of uh, scenario, uh, someone that reports to me, you know, I, I'm I'm complimenting her. You're doing a fantastic job, but it's hard for me when I'm talking to someone else. Hey, how is insert person here doing? Oh, they're fantastic. You know, they they just do such a great job. This book helps articulate the the reason that they get the ball. Um, so it. it we're going to get into it more, but I, I'm with you. I think you nailed that because if I was going to uh, instruct someone, uh, whether they're a manager or somebody that's, uh, that's wanting to have bigger influence, bigger impact on the team, I would hand them this book and say, it's going to help you on both sides because your manager wants you to be an impact player too, really, really bad, but they might not know how to do it. So this, this, this book would, uh, be instructed. And that that's way. really what I've heard from people that I didn't know how to articulate that, but that's what the book does. And then, and, oh, we heard that in so many interviews is, you know, managers said, oh yeah, I know who my impact players are. You know, as we're interviewing them, trying to understand who their impact players are, who are their ordinary contributors and, and what the differences are. And, and by the end of the interview, they would say, I just knew there was something special about this person but I didn't really know what it was until we talked about it for an hour. And now I'm really clear on those differences. And, and that's what we've tried to do is surface those. Well, CCB technology is the option for outsourced IT. And they want to provide you with a couple questions that you should be asking yourself and potential providers for outsourced IT. Number one, ask your current or future IT provider, what do they mean by managed services? Have them define those terms. For example, if your car is clunky and you think it's your transmission and it turns out it is your transmission, you're going to take your car before the junkyard to a mechanic. And if you talk to a person that says, yep, I can do that for you. I'm a one guy shop and I'm a mechanic. Okay. They look at your car, turns out, whoops, I'm a mechanic that doesn't know how to do transmissions. Bad for you, really bad for them, unless they can outsource it to somebody else that knows how to do transmissions. So get definitions of terms. CCB Technology is proud to say that we outline all of that upfront for each customer when anything around managed services. And we're also proud to say that the second question you should be asking is, how many W-2 employed uh, engineers do they have on staff? We at CCB Technology have right around 15 on staff. That's before any sort of outsourcing or partnering or any of that stuff. 
level one to level three right here in our building to serve you. CCBtechnology.com is where you can get more information. Ask your provider to define the term managed services and how many W-2 employed engineers do they have? CCBtechnology.com. For more information, we would love to partner with you. I think you describe in this book at length what most people, my opinion, sweep under the rug of the X factor. So they just have it, whatever it is. But you can't, if you're going to interview somebody, if you're going to coach somebody, you need something more than it or X factor. I mean, we, we get what that means, but it's the first time I've heard it uh, articulated in the way that you did. So uh, well done. Um, the the feedback piece, before we move on to my next question, um, I have a follow-up on, on feedback. So what's been the most surprising piece of feedback that you've received so far about this book and this work? Mm. Well, I don't know that it's surprising. I'll give you the feedback that stings. And, and there's a whole... There's a whole like category, I think, of readers who who hate this book, and you know it's hard to write a book that people hate. Um, <laughs> so what? Yeah, what? What? Okay, I mean, uh, yeah, what's that? I didn't. Why? You know, there's. I, I the, let me um, let me see if I can recall the one of the more recent um, uh, reviews on Amazon, and it was just titled "Hated It." And I maybe it was a two star, but it kind of read more like a one star review. But it said, "My manager made me read this book, made our whole team read it, and I absolutely hate it." And it's full of, you know, stories about people who put their own interests and passions aside to work on what's important to their company. Like, I hate this. And you know, I think it might be somebody who hates their job or their boss, but there's a whole category of people who um, maybe were made to read this book and feel like somebody's dropping it on their desk saying, this isn't you and I need it to be you. Oh, like a prescription or something or a... And some of those people might read the book and go, oh, wow, this is so helpful. Like I've always known that there was some reason why I was being... I don't know, on the third string or why I was being overlooked or why my ideas aren't being heard or why I don't get a seat at the table. And this book is so helpful, but I think for others, they're maybe past wanting to learn about it. I don't know that that was surprising feedback. I, I understand that feedback. Would you suggest the, the, the a better route would be if you are in some sort of authoritative position, you read this book, you enjoy it, you do want this for your team, but read it for yourself first and then approach it as a come alongside versus, uh, or, or what would you say to the manager if they were going to hand this book so that there's less, you can't control people ultimately if they hate their job, but what would you suggest for the manager who wants to go through this with their team or wants to hand it to them to mitigate some of that? Um, I hate that this was just prescribed to me. Yes. And I think, Steve, you were describing it, which is like, come alongside, come alongside me. Let's look at this. Let's look at, and, you know, one of the points I try to make in the book is that, you know, the book is in many ways, it's a, a sharp contrast between the, the ordinary contributor and the impact player. But I try to make the point, and maybe I'll try to make it here. I think most people figure it out, even without me making the point, is that it's really not a classification of two types of people. 
it's two different modes of thinking and working that we tend to move in and out of. You know, I can, and the book has a few stories about times where I was very much an impact player in an organization and on a team. And, but it's also got some stories in there where I was missing the mark and I was just going through the motions and turning the crank. And um, so I know what it's like to work in both modes. And, and so I think when you look at it less as a classification of people, like a game of, like the child's game of duck, duck, goose, and you look at it more like, gee, what traps us in ordinary contributor mode and how do we escape those traps? Like what pressures do people feel that keep them stuck in this mode and how can we relieve some of those pressures and give people permission to work in a bigger way? And I think that's a come alongside me approach as you described. Um, more about modes, less about people. More, you know, if you're the leader, more about like, hey, I find myself, you know, stuck in some of these traps. What could we do as a team? I, I also think, you know, if there's one thing I've learned in in the research I've done, studying, you know, some of the best leaders in the world, some of the worst, some, you know, impact players, under contributors, etc. The thing I've learned, and boy, this crosses industries and cultures and continents, is that people come to work really wanting to contribute really wanting to do a good job, wanting to, to make a difference. You know, very few people really want to be job holders. They want to be difference makers. And, and as leaders, if we can create that environment and respect that, you know, the person who, you know, was dragged into that book discussion or wrote the review, hated it, like they want to do a good job, but something has made them hate their job. Before I before I ask specific questions about the book, I do have some things outlined here. It might be helpful to have like a working definition of an impact player because there's been a couple terms that you've talked about, ordinary contributor and impact player. Um, so what would be a variation or a working definition of an impact player? Well, I'll give you my kind of more nerdy definition and then maybe I'll give you uh, Nick Saban, the uh, Alabama coach's definition. I like his definition better than mine, but you know, my definition is an impact player is a standout contributor who contributes extraordinary value but also does that in a way that makes teams better. That's that's kind of my more boring definition. Nick Saban's I love his definition. I had a chance to ask him what what he th- what an impact player was to him. And he said, well, you know, good players make plays and great players make great plays consistently, but the impact players not only make those great plays consistently, they make the entire team better. And then, you know, he, he tells a story of uh, Kobe Bryant, who's um, playing on the Olympic redeem team under coach K this team that went to the Olympics. And, you know, he tells a story about how, you know, they're meeting up for, I don't know how long, but um, in Las Vegas at in training camp, getting the team ready to go off to the Olympics. And, you know, it's like five in the morning, five thirty in the morning. And a bunch of the players are rolling in from a great night out in Vegas. And, you know, they're going up the elevator and, and Kobe Bryant's coming down the elevator. Cause he's, and they're like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to the gym. And they're like, why? Like we're in Vegas. He's like, we're going to the Olympics guys, you know, so Kobe goes off to the gym himself. And then, you know, as the week progresses, more people come in early and hit the gym 
early with, with Kobe. And by the end of the week, the whole team is doing it. And Kobe's like, guys, we're going to the Olympics and it's not a given that we're, you know, like, and, and there's an example of not only a great player, but someone who just has an infectious um, attitude an infectious work ethic, but it's not about working harder. It's about like thinking like we can make a difference. Mm -hmm. That's great. I heard you on uh, Brene Brown's podcast. Uh, she she asked you about something that I thought was really intriguing, and it's it's definitely a theme throughout the book. But about readiness, and what's the role of a leader in helping an employee be ready? Being ready, you could look at it. I, I used to run um, back in my corporate. Oh, executive days, I ran readiness for Oracle. It was one of many things in my bundle of stuff I did. But, you know, I was in charge of making sure that the organization was skill ready. If we released a new software, you know, release, we had to make sure all of our salespeople could sell it, you know, all the consultants knew how to install it, tune it, you know, et cetera. So it was like a skill readiness, but this is a different kind of readiness. It's not about being skilled and ready for the moment. It's about paying attention to what's going on in the moment. And, you know, uh, I think this is best captured in this experience. I've seen so many times where, you know, I'm a mom of four and, you know, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sporting events have I gone to. And I'm fascinated watching the sidelines because, you know, there's the players who are on the field. So whether it's football or soccer or, you know, field hockey or lacrosse, there's, there's what's going on the field. And then there's the players who have just come off the field. And I'm not talking about the bench that's probably never going to go in, but the players who some of them come off the field and they goof off or they take a rest and other players come off the field and they stay attentive, like as if they're still on the field, like what's going on. They're staying warm. They don't let their mind get iced in many ways. And you know, they're the kind that the, their helmet is still on. So when the coach says you're in, they're not looking around for their helmet and trying to find, you know, their mouth protector. They're just ready to go. And I, I think it's very similar in the corporate world. There are employees who are just paying attention to not just what they're doing, but what's happening around them. So when the boss is like, okay, like clean up on aisle 13, like they already know that's happening and they're ready to go. Mm -hmm. Is there something that, that I slash we, cause just full transparency, like this is a very selfish conversation because everything that, that I'm asking, I'm hoping to apply uh, like immediately with my team. So uh, that they, makes me happy. Well, good, uh, good. I'm glad. Cause I love this stuff, uh, but is there something that I slash we leadership that we care about our people? Okay. Let's just assume that I, I love my team. I care about them. I care about their, their families and I want them to be uh, successful and hopefully they stay here forever, but obviously most people will not retire from here. So if I'm thinking rightly about this, is there something that I should be um, practicing, exercising in my leadership to help uh make sure that people know that readiness is something that we prioritize or I'm not even sure how to ask it, but is there, can that be, can that be trained? Can readiness be trained? I mean, I don't even know if I'm asking that right. Yeah. And well, let me, Steve, can I back up just a little bit? Yes, and absolutely. Yeah. I want to clarify what readiness is not. Readiness is not about being always on. It's not about always working. So it's not like, okay, team, I need you always on a heightened state of alert, sort of almost like an 
agita, like that state you're in before a heart attack where, you know, like constantly on edge. It's not that kind of readiness, like, okay, I need you to be ready at a moment's notice to, you know, divine the fact that I sent you an email Friday night at eight o'clock and to respond. It's not that. It's it's about just paying attention. Um, what's the saying that some people use, like being where your feet are? So it's not like always having, like always being in the game of work. It's that when you're there, you're there and you're paying attention. And, you know, whether that can be taught, I don't know, but I think it can be aided and the way that it can be aided. So let me back up one more time. One of the things that we found, one of the five big differences in the ordinary contributor versus the impact player is that when encountering messy problems where there's no real clear owner, the the ordinary contributor tends to do their job. They do their piece of it, whereas the impact player does the job that's needed, the job that needs to be done, which means they're paying attention like, okay, it's not my job, you know, but okay, we've got an accident on aisle 13, like it's not my official role, but clearly something emergent has happened and it needs attention. Let me go and do that. So one of the things that, and some people just pay attention, like they pay attention. What does my boss care about? What are the hot spots in the organization? What are people talking about? What's important? What's interesting? Where's their action? Where's their funding and budget and energy and momentum? And they're going to make sure that their work is pointed there everywhere possible. But for those who maybe don't do that naturally, what a leader can do is just keep letting people know what's important and what's important right now. I call them the wins, what's important now. And and it's letting people know, you know what, here are some really important things this week. It might be in like team huddles, Uh, like here's what's on my mind, here's like things I'm trying to figure out. And so you're letting people know here are hot spots and hot buttons and hot issues so that they can be paying attention to what's happening there. Are there, uh, are there a couple that you could off the top of your head, you said five. So are there the five problems, challenges, uh, that impact players respond differently to than typical contributors off the top of your head? Do you have like one or three that come to mind? Oh, Steve, of course I can, I can remember the five. So, well, yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot Thank unnecessarily. For, it's a big book. <laughs> they, I'm, I, I don't necessarily know what's on page 77 of the gotcha. book, but I, yeah. I do know these. So here, here are the five differences that we found. The first is how they deal with messy problems. So the ordinary contributor does their job. The impact player is doing the job that's needed. The second is how we tend to respond to um, unclear roles where, you know, you can't, you know people are collaborating, but you can't quite figure out who's in charge. What we find is that the ordinary contributor, they tend to wait for direction. They wait for someone above to provide role clarification. They're willing to lead, but they're waiting for someone to appoint them. And in those situations, the the impact player, they're not waiting for direction. They're stepping up and taking the lead. But they not only step up and lead, they very gracefully step back. Like when that need is served, they kind of roll back into position. So they're not 
constantly needing to be everybody's boss, but they're willing to lead on demand rather than by command. The the third difference is how, you know, they deal with unforeseen obstacles. Like what do they do when something drops in their path that's out of their control? And we find that the ordinary contributor, they, they get things going and they take responsibility. But when something bigger than them is impeding their path, they tend to look upward for relief. They escalate the issue and they hand it off to the higher ups who have more power, more, you know, like purview over that. And in these situations, we find that the impact player, they not only take responsibility, they hold onto it longer. They're finishers. They get it done all the way down. They're the kind of people you work with when you know that when you send a request to them, you can just cross it off your to-do list. You don't have to follow up. You don't have to nag. It's just going to get done. And, you know, they not only finish, they finish stronger and often they get things across the finish line, not alone, but like in some ways, instead of handing it off to a higher up, they hold on to that responsibility and they get the higher ups working for them. It's kind of like, it's instead of saying, hey, boss, we have a problem. Let me, you know, give this to you. It's, hey, boss, we have a problem. I'm on it. And here's what I need from you totally different way of working mm-hmm. and you can imagine why bosses love them. Oh, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I can. We we want to like we want to go to work for the people who work for us when they're getting the right stuff done. Like, hey, oh you gosh. tell me what you need from me. And you want to pour into those people. It's so great when it's like a hum. It's, it's like a, a hum. it's like a it's like a musical like a perfect chord or something. It's, it's a, yes, the machine's moving. And anyway, yes, I'm with you. Sorry. You're answering questions. Yeah. Here. Okay. Number four, it's what do they do when like targets are moving where the environment's changing and roles are changing and budgets and, you know, needs are changing and, you know, in ordinary contributor mode, we tend to stick to what we know. It's like, no, this was the budget I was given. These were, this was the remit I was given when in ordinary contributor mode, we're sticking to it. In impact player mode, we are adapting, adjusting like, okay, I get it. The world changed. What's our new target? What do I need to do differently? They're, they're constantly seeking input, like what's happening around me, what's changing, and how do I change with it? Um, sort of a more of a chameleon than a hedgehog. Uh, and then lastly, it's what do we do when we just are dealing with unrelenting demands where the workloads are hard and heavy. And, you know, in the ordinary contributor mode, we tend to um, look for relief. We, we end up adding to the burden. Whereas the impact players just make work light for everyone. And there's a bunch of ways they do that. It's not about um, doing things for other people. It's not like, oh, gee, Steve, you look busy. Why don't I take some of your work from you? Like, let me give you some relief. Well, that's not particularly scalable, and that's actually going to dilute my impact. They're just light. They, they're they low maintenance, low drama, easy to work with, find the simplest ways to get things done, focus on what's important and ignore all the other junk, like recover fast from disappointments. And then my favorite, which is just to bring a sense of lightheartedness, like, you know what, we don't have to take ourselves seriously to do really great work. Like we can have fun. We can laugh at ourselves and 
And that's really what managers want are people who like raise the mood rather than make hard work harder. All right, so this is the part of the episode where I do the uh, takeaways and action items, but I'm not going to this time. My only action item is for you to come back and listen to part two of my conversation with Liz Wiseman. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate you sharing it with someone with a note of encouragement. It is a benefit to all of us in this leadership space because as you all benefit, we benefit value transfer and all that good stuff. We have over 130 other episodes like this in our podcast library. Check it out at impactofleadership.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And also we have almost uh, 85 blogs, I think now for free on impactofleadership.com. Check that out as well. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Happy New Year again. And we will talk to you again in part two.